Hello, this is Patrick Ridgel with Transamerica, and welcome to another edition of Market Pulse. I'm here once again with Transamerica Asset Management Chief Investment Officer, Tom Wald. Tom, welcome back. Thank you, Patrick. Nice to be back. Now, Tom, we've entered October, a month known for things like pumpkins, football, the World Series, and lots of other fun stuff. But October has also historically been a month with a fair amount of market ghosts. And I'm not not just talking Halloween here. Uh, Yes, Patrick. Clearly, uh, more than any other month of the year, October conjures up some pretty scary images of markets past. I, I guess the first that come to mind are the 1929 market crash and also the worst single-day market history back in October of 1987. There's also been some really bad days in other years, such as 1932, 1937, 1989, 1997, and 2008. In fact, when you look at the 20 worst days in market history, nine of them, almost half of them, occurred in October. So yes, more than a few October ghosts in the market history books. Uh, However... I'm glad there's a however to this. (laughs) <laughs> yes. However, when accounting for all years over close to the past uh, century or so, October actually has averaged out uh, to a positive return in the market, about okay. plus 0.4 percent on the S&P 500, which is not uh, far away from the average for all calendar months, which is about 0.6 percent. The worst month uh, historically, by a large mo- margin, has actually been September, mm. which since 1928 has averaged a one percent monthly decline and, and we just finished that month so yay mm-hmm. uh and, and when you get <laughs> and when you look at the 20 best days in market history actually six of them also occurred in october so i think our perception of october you know is a bit skewed by some of those really bad days in history so you think the month gets a bit of a bad rap i, I do uh i think there there is some negative psychology involved with October, but but certainly not enough to factor in anything uh, strategically meaningful. Okay, it's interesting. So so when we look at where we are right now, this October, I believe you, you said that we have a lot going on investors need to keep, keep close tabs on. Uh, that, that, that's right, Patrick. And, and I think it begins with some of the market volatility we've been witnessing of late uh, in the equity markets. The S&P 500 reached its all-time record high on September 1st. And since then, we we have seen a bit of a downdraft. Now, Tom, I believe you said on a few occasions, going back to last summer, that you believe the odds are increasing that we could see a sell-off in stocks in the 10% range? That's right. And and, and I would still ascribe to that. I would measure that off of the September 1st high on the S&P 500, which was an interday price of about uh, 45.50 or so. That would put a 10% correction right at about 4100 and, and that's where I would gauge short-term price risk right now. And Tom, I believe you've also said that a correction of this nature, and I'm going to quote you directly here, would likely be more a result of history and human nature than market fundamentals or valuation. Could you expand on that a bit? Sure. It, it's only human nature for investors to want to bank profits at some point in time. And, and if you look at the cumulative return, uh, the cumulative total return on just the S&P 500 since the depths of the COVID-19 induced sell-off in late March of 2020 to this recent September 1st high, that comes out to about a 110% total return when you account for price gains plus dividends. Better than a double. 
Uh, yes, and in less than a year and a half time. So it's only human nature for investors that investors will consider taking some of that off the table at some point. And okay. history infers that could be pretty likely. Since 1950, we've had 36 market sell-offs of 10% or more in the S&P 500, which averages to about one every two years. Moreover, Patrick, the median time between corrections over those uh, 70 years has been a year and a half. And the average time between the end of a correction and the start of a new one has been about a year. Finally, and this is what I really find most interesting, is that there have only been four times in these past 70 years that the S&P has more than doubled without a 10% correction along the way. Those being 1984 through 1987, 1990 through 97, 2003 through 2007, and 2011 through 2015. So, so we are clearly in some, in, in some unique territory right now. Now, you have also said that if we do see a correction of 10% or more under current market conditions, that would likely prove to be a buying opportunity for investors. Do you still feel that way? Yes. Uh, I still believe that when you get out into next year and probably by the end of 2022, even by perhaps mid-year 2022, about next summer or so, we will likely have turned the corner on most of what has created some market nervousness of late and has uh, perhaps served as some of the recent negative catalysts in the market. We think that even with some of these recent market disturbances, if you will, the longer-term story is still intact. And so we are maintaining our year-end 2021 price target on the S&P 500 of 4,600 and our mid-year 2022 price target of 4,800. And those negative catalysts would be? Well, from a macro perspective, the Delta variant looks like it will definitely take a toll on third quarter U.S. economic growth. Uh, okay. Back in July, most forecasts for this recently concluded quarter uh, ending September 30th were in a range of about a 7 to 8 percent on annualized GDP. Those forecasts have come down quite a bit. In fact, the Atlanta Fed is now tracking third quarter GDP growth at, at only slightly above 2%. So that's a pretty big drop in expectations. Yeah, it sure. It sounds like a pretty major decline. But, well, it is, but I think we have to keep a, a couple of things in perspective. First, we're talking about rate of growth here, and that 2% mm -hmm. uh, tracking number is still positive growth. And second, my opinion is the slowdown in growth expectations for this quarter also has a timing element to it. As of last June, uh, daily new COVID cases had fallen to their lowest levels since the early months of the pandemic at only about 10,000 uh, per, per day. But virus trends unfortunately spiked after the variant hit us hard beginning in July, and daily new cases skyrocketed uh, to a seven-day average north of 170,000 in late August. Since that time, we, we've come down to about 100,000 or so per day, still way too high, but at least heading in the right direction. Mm -hmm. uh, now, what this could mean, in my judgment, is that we see the COVID cases continue to decline. And as personal savings rates continue to remain high, uh, for August, we were about 9.4%, which was still close to a decade-long high. Uh, this slowdown in the third quarter 
could just wind up being a delay of activity and showing up as additional demand in the fourth quarter and into calendar year 2022. Got it. Now, another reason adding to recent market volatility recently has been pretty big moves in longer-term interest rates. Uh, Correct. Over the past couple of weeks, the long end of the curve has made a sharp move upward as seen the 10-year Treasury yields jump to more than 1.5% from its uh, 1.3% level just before the Fed's meeting uh, which concluded on uh, September 22nd. Mm-hmm. This also represented more than a 40 basis point rise uh, from its intraday low uh, back in early August. So what's been driving this rise in long-term rates? Uh, well, Patrick, I'll begin with what transpired at the Fed's most recent September meeting. While there were no uh, official policy changes to rates or asset purchase schedules, there was a good bit of written and verbal signaling Uh, from Chairman Powell and the committee. The first shot across the bow was in the official Fed statement itself, uh, which read, and I'll quote, uh, if progress in the economy continues broadly as expected, the committee judges that a moderation in the pace of asset purchases may soon be warranted, end of quote. Mm -hmm. Uh, Patrick, we would view this verbiage to represent uh, an announcement at the next scheduled Fed meeting the first week of November, that they will begin reducing current monthly open market purchases of $120 billion of combined U.S. Treasury bonds and mortgage-backed securities, uh, with an implementation of this reduction likely to begin in December. A- and in his post-meeting commentary, Chairman Powell also mentioned a potential timeline of perhaps being done with all asset purchases by mid-year 2022. Assuming that mid-year point to be the end of July, this would infer monthly reductions of $15 billion in bond purchases, which would be faster than most uh, had previously been expecting up to this point. Now, what about timing on an actual rate hike by the Fed? Yes. So in regard to the infamous Fed dot plot, which is an anonymous survey of all 18 Fed members as to where they believe the Fed funds rate will be at the end of the next three years, we also saw an interesting change. Specifically, there was a migration of two members shifting their forecast of a Fed rate hike from 2023 to 2022, putting that number at nine members, which is precisely half of the committee, and puts the median forecast for a rate hike now in the second half of 2022. Median expectations also now call for a lower bound on the target range of the Fed funds rate of 0.25% by the end of 2022 and an even 1% by the end of 2023. This reflects incrementally higher expectations than the previous June dot plot of a zero rate by the end of 2022 and 0.5% for 2023. So in isolation, Patrick, This infers we could see a rate hike faster than most had originally thought, maybe uh, in the second half of 2022 rather than sometime in calendar year 2023. Mm -hmm. However, Patrick, I I would also like to stress that Fed dot plots, these anonymous surveys of the Fed members, should probably be viewed more as a group perspective snapshot in time rather than any sort of a scientific forecasting mechanism. Uh, There have been plenty of instances in the past where the dots have rearranged on short notice. Uh, So I'd say take these dots with a grain of salt. I'll I'll remember that. But there seems to have been enough here to garner reaction in longer-term rates following the Fed meeting. 
Yes, no, no question. The statement on asset purchases, Chairman Powell's commentary, and the dot plot were all more than enough to finally get the 10-year Treasury yield to break through a, a major resistance yield level of 1.37% that a lot of people uh, had been watching. And once it went through that level, uh, uh, the 10-year rate kept moving higher from there. So where do you see long-term rates headed from here? I would say there's a good chance the 10-year Treasury yield challenges 2% uh, by the early months of 2022. Uh, this would, of course, infer that bond investors will want to stay short on the curve and probably below benchmark durations in their fixed income portfolios. Now, in addition to all of the written and verbal signaling on future policy you just mentioned, there's also the inflation element on rates as well, right? Uh, yes, absolutely. In our judgment, recent inflation has also played a major role in rising long-term interest rates. Uh, now, since we first saw the spikes in monthly and year-over-year inflation numbers last spring, Chairman Powell has been a somewhat decisive proponent that recent inflation will ultimately prove transitory and likely to abate as we approach uh, 2022. However, he did cede some ground on this position during the post-meeting press conference, calling current inflation, quote-unquote, frustrating and likely to stay around longer than expected, end of quote, while still holding uh, to his stance that it would revert toward the Fed's long-term target of 2% during 2022. So in our judgment, this admission by the Fed also has played a role in the rapid increase of long-term interest rates since the Fed's meeting. So, Tom, let's talk a little more on inflation now. It's now been about six months since the monthly numbers started escalating, and there's not yet appeared to be an identifiable end in sight. Uh, yes. Uh, for example, last week, the Fed's preferred measure of inflation, the Personal Consumption Expenditures, or PCE, Price Index for August, was released posting a year-over-year -year headline number of 4.3%, its highest rate since January of 1991, and an ex-food and energy core reading of 3.6%, its highest since May of 1991. So another way to look at this, Patrick, is the last time inflation was rising at this type of pace, Michael Jordan had not yet won his first NBA championship, and Tom <laughs> Brady was yet to begin his high school football career. <laughs> now that does sound <laughs> dramatic when you put it like that. Yes, it's uh, it's been a while since we've seen these types of inflation numbers. Now, Tom, in previous discussions, you've expressed your perspective that inflation will likely be transitory in nature. I guess the question is, how long is transitory? Yes, great, great question, Patrick. As we have mentioned in previous commentaries, we expect monthly and year-over-year -year inflation reports to remain hot for the rest of calendar year 2021 before ultimately reverting to a range of 2 to 3% uh, by the end of first quarter 2022. Uh, reasons we believe this include the, the base effects math of, of difficult comparisons related to the close to non-existent inflation during the depths of the first half 2020 economic contraction and the ultimate leveling off of a handful of subsectors such as used cars, car rentals, hotels, long-term lodging, and airline fares that have been driving a high percentage of the inflation index increases. That said, supply chain shortages over these next several months 
will be challenging. And these higher rates of inflation will probably be with us into the new year. And this could add to uncertainties and potential short-term volatility in the markets. In addition to the impacts on interest rates, where else should investors be looking in regard to inflation's effects on the economy and the market environment? Uh, Well, Patrick, at the end of the day, inflation ultimately stunts economic growth. And this is why it's so vital to get it under control in the months ahead. Mm -hmm. One key area is consumer spending, which ultimately accounts for about two-thirds of total U.S. GDP. So while inflation, i.e. higher prices, impacts how much consumers can afford to buy, the consumer spending included in GDP calculations is an inflation-adjusted number, meaning that consumer spending growth has to be in excess of inflation to be a positive contributor to economic growth. This seems to be playing a role right now as we speak in that declining rate of GDP growth for the third quarter that we just talked about. So a lot is at stake here in terms of inflation proving to be transitory in the months ahead. But to reiterate, Patrick, we think there remains a strong chance inflation comes down to the 2 to 3% range by the spring of 2022. This would, of course, uh, be above where it's been for the past decade uh, before this year began, but still at a more manageable level. Now, Tom, shifting gears a bit, there were some real fireworks in Washington this past week in terms of proposed infrastructure spending legislation and potential tax hikes associated with them. Yes, there was, Patrick. And I must say, having followed what goes on in our nation's capital for the past <laughs> half century yeah, since right. I was a kid, I-, I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like it. I mean, usually the warfare is between Democrats and Republicans, but this time it has been entirely within one party, progressive Mm -hmm. Democrats and moderate Democrats, and and all as about $4.7 trillion of government spending Mm -hmm. and a slew of tax hikes uh, hanging in the balance. So what do investors really need to know about this whole situation? Uh, In a nutshell, Patrick, there are two separate pieces of legislation, though uh, they are not really completely separate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let me let me explain that. Uh, first, you have a bipartisan bill uh, for $1.2 trillion of traditional infrastructure spending, uh, covering areas like roads, bridges, highways, airports, railways, waterways, and broadband, uh, what might be viewed as traditional uh, infrastructure spending. This was drafted uh, by a bipartisan group of Democrats and Republicans, and it has the support of Democrat moderates in the House and Senate, as well as President Biden. And from a market perspective, it has no new tax hikes associated with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you also have a proposed $3.5 trillion of social spending legislation that is supported only by Democrats, which includes areas such as uh, child care, climate change, clean energy, public housing, tuition-free community college, or what has uh, also been termed a quote-unquote human infrastructure. Mm-hmm. This has a lot of tax hikes associated with it, including uh, raising the marginal corporate tax rate from 21% to 26.5%, raising the investment capital gains rate from 20% to 25%, and raising the top individual rate from 37% to 39.6%. So I believe the markets are much more honed in on this larger bill 
that will only require simple majorities in the House and Senate. Now you have the president in favor of both of these bills, uh, with the exception of a handful of House and Senate members who worked on the smaller bipartisan version. You pretty much have Republicans against both. You have uh, Democrat senators and House members for the most part, in favor of both. However, progressive Democrats like the $3.5 trillion social spending package better, and moderate Democrats like the $1.2 trillion traditional infrastructure package better. And mm-hmm. you have both sides wanting their bill passed first, or they won't vote for the other one. So <laughs> progressive Democrats in the House blocked a vote on the $1.2 trillion package, and you also have two Moderate Democrat senators, Joe Manchin from West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema from Arizona, publicly stating they will not vote for the $3.5 trillion social spending bill because they say the price tag is too high and they they might have some issues uh, with the the tax hikes as well. So the bottom line is the Democrats had hoped to get these bills passed by the last week of September. However, both wings of the party blocked each other and uh, nothing was passed. Further negotiations uh, will, of course, ensue. But from a market perspective, those potential tax hikes remain unresolved. Mm-hmm. And most importantly, Patrick, if that increase on the marginal corporate tax rate passes from 21% to 26.5%, or even just 25% for that matter, it could wipe out the majority of corporate earnings growth currently forecast for the S&P 500 underlying companies in calendar year 2022. So that likely uh, would, in my opinion, create a market reaction. Now, in such a case, I think the market would look ahead uh, to 2023, but still would probably uh, not be a good immediate uh, reaction for equities if the larger $3.5 trillion bill was passed. Mm -hmm. But uh, based on the inability of Congress uh, to get either bill passed, we are now in a new negotiating phase. And that top line $3.5 trillion number will almost certainly come down perhaps uh, to the $1.5 to $2 trillion range. Still a huge number, of course. Uh, And and with that, uh, we'll have to see if the tax provisions uh, might change as well. So suffice it to say this soap opera is not over yet and could drag on for a while with some market implications along the way. That is a pretty wild set of circumstances you just laid out. <laughs> yes, it's it's always interesting when the markets and politics intersect. Uh, mm-hmm. Two dynamics not really made for one another, uh, but we'll have to slog through it. So, Tom, as usual, we've covered a lot in this discussion, and it's always helpful to end with a summary for our listeners. Of course. So so let's start. Market volatility. Yeah, we could see near-term downside in the S&P 500 to about 4,100, which would complete a 10% correction off the early September high. But at that point and under current conditions, uh, that would likely, in our judgment, be a buying opportunity. Uh, and we are maintaining our year-end 2021 price target on the S&P 500 of 4,600 and our mid-year 2022 target of 4,800. Interest rates? Uh, We think the Fed will announce asset purchase tapering at next month's meeting in early November, likely to be completed between December and next July. Uh, We think a rate hike is still a jump ball between late 2022 and early 2023, 
And following the recent increase at the longer end of the curve, we see the 10-year Treasury yield challenging 2% over the next several months. How about inflation? We see monthly and year-over-year inflation reports continuing to run hot between now and the end of the year. We think there's a good chance inflation reverts to the 2 to 3% range by the end of first quarter 2022. All that said, inflation is a wild card. Investors will need to watch closely due to its ultimate impact on economic growth and Fed monetary policy. Okay. Economic growth? The recently completed third quarter will likely see a marked decline in growth, perhaps close to 2% or so. However, we see a pull through into the fourth quarter and next year based on an ultimate subsiding of virus trends, high levels of consumer savings ready to be applied as pent-up demand into the economy. Uh, We still believe there is a strong probability we could see 3 to 4% GDP growth in calendar year 2022, representing a favorable backdrop for investors. Events in Washington? Uh, Yes, it it, it could be a long few months as Democrats sort out these two spending bills. Look for uh, the $3.5 trillion package to come down closer to 1.5 to 2 trillion. And if the corporate tax rate is increased to north of 25%, there could be an immediate reaction in the markets based on downward revisions to 2022 corporate earnings estimates. However, the market would, in our judgment, uh, likely soon focus on 2023 profits. So there you go. Thank you for that final summary, Tom. And, and thank you for joining us today for another great discussion. Thank you, Patrick. Investments are subject to market risk, including the loss of principal. Asset classes or investment strategies described may not be suitable for all investors. Past performance does not guarantee future results. The information included in this podcast should not be construed as investment advice or a recommendation for the purchase or sale of any security. This material contains general information only on investment matters. It should not be considered as a comprehensive statement on any matter and should not be relied upon as such. The information does not take into account any investor's investment objectives, particular needs, or financial situation. The value of any investment may fluctuate. This information has been developed by Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated and may incorporate third-party data, text, images, and other content to be deemed reliable. Comments and general market-related projections are based on information available at the time of writing and believed to be accurate, are for informational purposes only, are not intended as individual or specific advice, may not represent the opinions of the entire firm, and may not be relied upon for future investing. Investors are advised to consult with their investment professional about their specific financial needs and goals before making any investment decisions. The COVID-19 pandemic has caused substantial market disruption and dislocation around the world, including the U.S. Economies and financial markets throughout the world are increasingly interconnected. Economic, financial, or political events, trading and tariff arrangements, terrorism, technology and data interruptions, natural disasters, and other circumstances in one or more countries or regions could be highly disruptive to and have profound impacts on global economies or markets. Fixed income investing is subject to credit rate risk, interest rate risk, and inflation risk. Credit risk is the risk that the issuer of a bond won't meet their payments. Inflation risk is the risk that inflation could outpace a bond's interest income. Interest rate risk is the risk that fluctuations in interest rates will affect the price of a bond. Investing in floating rate loans may be subject to greater volatility and increased risks. Equities are subject to market risk, meaning that stock prices in general may decline over short or extended periods of time. Investments in global and or international markets involve risks not associated with U.S. markets, such as currency fluctuations, adverse social and political developments, and the relatively small size and lesser liquidity of some markets. These risks may be greater in emerging markets. Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated is an SEC-registered investment advisor. The funds advised and sponsored by Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated include Transamerica Funds, Transamerica Series Trust, and Delta Shares Exchange Traded Funds. 
Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated is an indirect, wholly owned subsidiary of Aegon NV, an international life insurance, pension, and asset management company. 186-1368.